I guess the biggest thing I've kind of learned through all of it, which might sound a little silly, uh, but that I am enough, that I'm good enough. Because for so long, for so many years, Jimmy said, you'll never be good enough. Welcome to Practical Horseman's new podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandy Olenek, and this week's episode is with five-time Olympic show jumper, Ann Kurzinski. I spoke with Ann earlier this year in Wellington, Florida, just after the U.S. Equestrian Federation named her the recipient of the Sally Bush Wheeler Trophy, which is awarded for distinguished service to equestrian sport. When USEF President Murray Kessler announced Ann as a recipient, he listed her very long list of accomplishments, from her many times representing the United States in international competition to her work as a trainer for many riders, including helping to develop up-and-coming young talent for the USEF. He also spoke about her work to promote safe sport, which has the goal of recognizing, reducing, and responding to misconduct and abuse in sport. Before we started the interview, I asked Anne if it was okay to discuss her experiences as a child whose trainer sexually abused her for many years. Anne has spoken publicly about the experience and the absolute truth that abuse of any kind should never happen to anyone under any circumstances. To her, children are especially vulnerable and must be protected. One area of her experience that hasn't been brought up very much is how she has been able to reconcile the terrible things that her trainer did to her with the fact that he also taught her a tremendous amount about horsemanship. She mentions him in clinics that she teaches in terms of riding lessons and exercises that she learned from him. For the podcast, that's where we start our discussion about what she went through. The message that I took away from her answers is that while what happened to her never should have happened, she has, through years of hard work, come to a place where she's accepted it and has moved on and become a successful rider in spite of it. That she is okay and that she more than survived this experience. And I think that's the message that she wants to send to people, especially young people who might be going through this. We don't lead off the podcast with this area. In fact, it's quite near the end. And we did this on purpose because while this terrible experience that Anne has had to deal with is a big part of her life, it doesn't and didn't define her. She is not a victim, but a talented rider and a respected trainer who has reached the top echelons of her sport. She has favorite horses. She has valuable insights into preparing herself and her horses for competition. She has struggled to control the inner critic that occasionally kept her from enjoying the journey she has been on, and she has invaluable training tips. All of these topics are the foundation of our conversation. On a much lighter note, Anne and I spoke at the barn where she stables at for the Winter Equestrian Festival. It was about lunchtime, and for the first 10 minutes or so, you can 
hear some shuffling in the background and even the microwave as people were getting their lunches. So I apologize for that noise. Now let's get right to our conversation with Anne, who begins by talking about why she thinks she has been so successful. I guess my success, I have to say the love of the horse, really. You know, I love horses and wanted to be the best rider I could be when I was a little girl and how to make horses do great things and do great things with horses. That was probably my childhood dream and and just went with it. What is, can you say what it is about horses that has just captured your, your life's passion? Yeah, good question. Um, oh, just these big, strong, noble, athletic, amazing animals that are so kind and so forgiving mostly. Um, you know, to see them jump these huge fences and how they do that, you know, when I was little, of like, oh my God, how do you get them to do that? how can I do that with them? That uh, magical fascination. Uh, and and even, you know, even when I was young, watching like dressage or how do you get them to trot in place or make lead changes every every stride, things like that. How do you how do you dance with them? How do you talk to them? Uh, that that magical part of them to to become one with the horse. It's been said that the horses work really hard for you and certainly um you make it look effortless when you're in the arena, but um, why do you think they try so hard for you and work so hard for you? Um, I've been very fortunate to have great horses. I've also had difficult horses. You learn learn through all of them. Of course, they all haven't been perfect, but I think building that rapport, uh, I love to flat them myself. I love to be in the barn with them myself. O- always have done the afternoon walks before the walking machines were built, and all of that. Every afternoon, walk each Olympic horse for an hour myself. Not not have the grooms do it. So the hands on the, and then going through the these kinds of journeys with them, to say the Olympics or a big championship. But of course, did that when I was younger at lower level things. That every. Um, Oh, they're shoeing, they're how they're eating and what their diet is. And I mean, there's just nothing like that to, to really train with them every day. And when you're going for a big event, uh, you know, ev- everything that you do with them every day, oh, how are they gonna be? You know, how are they, they soundness wise after you jump them? Are they happy? Are they focused? Are they sound? You know, you know all those things. So it's getting inside of them that the, Really, it's the bond that I, at least for me, really the love and the bond, and always that more than actually the winning part. You've ridden a lot of horses in your career, and um, who who stands out for you and, and why? Yeah, I've been fortunate to have so many great, great horses and owners um, of the horses. Uh, probably my two favorite, Eros and Starman, um, the two different horses but that I won Olympic silver medals on and and again had a quite long relationships with um in a way I guess Eros that I got him as a five-year-old and I still have him and he's 32 so you still have him now yes he's still at my farm in Frenchtown and so it's really been a lifelong journey how to get a horse at five and believe he's going to go to the Olympics and everything in between you know winning at Aachen and Mexico and all the things we did. Uh, and then to see you know, them get older and still love to go see him every day when I'm home at 32. Um, <laughs> and just, uh, he was an amazing athlete. Uh, 
it was always a bit of a compromise with Eros because he was a thoroughbred. You know, you don't really see any thoroughbreds anymore at the, in the big sport. Mm -hmm. right. So you, you know, to train him to do the a little dressage that he didn't love, and yet to let him jump the way he always wanted to jump, kind of on a lighter rein, lighter seat, the thoroughbred. Uh, always a compromise um, with him, never, never controlling every, every step, everything. Um, oh, and he just, again, that, that um, love, love, passion for him and what he did for me and my, not only my career, but, but just personally, every day. Mm -hmm. What was he like back at the, in the stables? Um, yeah, he was, he was a, a little bit of a handful. He was a thoroughbred. And a little, for certainly to ride, he was always a hot horse, which I liked. I grew up on thoroughbreds. Uh, you know, everything I rode as a little kid was a thoroughbred. Um, but in the barn, oh, biting and kicking, he, he never really nailed anybody. But he was always um, demanding attention and that he was a world-class athlete in the cross tie, you know, couldn't just have anybody take care of him. And even if maybe he tried to bite somebody or a little bit of a kick, he was sort of always went with a red ribbon in his tail. Um, it was more, he was demanding to pay attention to him. That he, you know, I'm this great horse, I'm this great being. And sometimes, you know, you'd put kind of a younger groom with him or somebody, and he, right away, Eris was showing them, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, because <laughs> he, he had charge. Such, yes, yeah, yeah, he, just a great character. Mm -hmm. um, and still to this day, you go to the stall, my, myself, so he sort of tries to bite, you know, he puts his ears, and yet it's a game, it's a game with me, it's a mm -hmm. game. Uh, but in it's sort of the day he doesn't do that, I'm really gonna worry. <laughs> and how about Starman? Uh, and Starman was a great horse. He was uh, uh, 88, we went to the Olympics, um, Arrows was 92. And he, when I got him, I had uh, already been to one Olympics and had ridden at that level, you know, in 84, been, been at that level. Um, but when I got Starman, he was only eight, and uh, when I first rode him, I thought, oh, I think, you know, this is the power, the scope. He wasn't a thoroughbred, because he's a warm blood stallion, but he was light, and he was more thoroughbred-y than, than some of the heavy warm bloods. Um, and he gave me confidence. He was like, oh, we can jump anything, and, and that horse was... The bigger the jumps, the bigger the crowd, and and then the jumps weren't quite as delicate. When Arrow started, then they started getting more delicate, you know, uh, time-wise, competing. Um, uh, but with Starman, you know, just the bigger the crowd, Aachen, uh, Devon, um, of course the Olympics. He just knew it was an amazing event, and and would fly over the jumps. You know, maybe you jumped him in New Jersey Grand Prix or something. He didn't really care sometimes. You know, what's you know what's the big deal? Um, but his the, to give you confidence, say yes, we can jump anything. You know, mm -hmm. just the scope and the power, and sort of with him, the more I, more warm blood, the more I legged him and sort of held on to him. Even though he went in a snaffle, a gag, a little bit, um, just I, I and I was young, you know, young. Uh, oh my God, you can jump anything, and the bigger the better. And wanted to win. Uh, as I say, Eros was was well, yeah, same thing. Point him at anything, he would jump anything. I mean, they, they wanted to win. Again, they, they really wanted to win. Mm -hmm. um, but Eros was this light, a cluck, and a woe. He wasn't, you know, digging with my spurs or pulling. You know, Eros was very, just totally just. the opposite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, you've been talking about uh, the, the Olympics, and um, you've obviously won a lot of major Grand Prix. I think just about every major Grand Prix that there is. 
what um, does any one particular win or, or few wins really stick out in your memory? Yeah, I've been fortunate to have some great, for sure, great career victories. And um, I, my favorite still to this day, probably, I would have to say the Grand Prix of Aachen, winning the Grand Prix of Aachen on mm -hmm. Starman. And uh, maybe it only been won by a woman once before. Or, and huge competition and two round, you know, the old fashioned two round Grand Prix with the jump off. and. Um, just the the kind of things you dream of, you know. When I was a little girl, I uh, living in California and thinking, you know, never going to the Olympics or anything. But you know, those looking at the old books, even black and white books with Billy Steinkraus and Mary Chapeau and you know Neil Shapiro going to the Olympics and seeing Aachen and seeing these famous places and dreaming that someday you know you'd get to go there. Because it was different then; people didn't get to go like they go so much today. Mm -hmm. the travel the world is so much smaller now and. So to really be there and have, again, Starman just be wanting to win it also. Three clear rounds and the jump off, I had to go fast and he even turned and lost a shoe that I didn't know at the time. And oh, wow. Race to the last jump and, oh my God, we won. And it was, and, the, and in front of that crowd, you know, I mean, to me, that's the grandmother of a all very four shows, you know. A crowd. And uh, so that was very, very, very exciting for sure. Probably the most exciting event. Um, the one other one would be with Eros winning winning at Monterey, Mexico after the, the World Equestrian Games that had been in Rome. Um, and uh, we hadn't done so well in, 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 in the way. And then a couple of weeks later, right from there, we went to Monterey. And then that was the richest Grand Prix in the world. It was $450,000 at the time. That was kind of the big one. And, and uh, so to go there and after the whole team thing, not, not being so great at Rome, you know, that happens. You have a great championships, you have not so great ones. And to go there, and a lot of the same riders were there with the horse, same horses, and uh, oh, and he was great again, three clear rounds, and, and just amazing, and to win that one. And at the time, it was the richest Grand Prix in the, in the world. And, mm -hmm. and uh, he actually paid whatever the check was, sort of is what he had already paid for himself, you know, I mean, it was pretty cute then at the time. And, mm -hmm. But again, just a horse that wanted to win. He didn't do much. Just stay out of his way. Don't you know? Let him. Let him do his thing. Do you have uh, like a, a routine you go through to prepare for a big competition? Yeah. Um, uh, years and years ago, I started sports psychology. So that's always been, even in the 70s, when you can only get like the inner game of tennis or the inner game of golf. Those were like the only sports psychology books. And now, of course, it's a whole. They're all over industry, the place. Industry, right? Yeah, industry, exactly. <laughs> And um, so, kind of getting how to get focused and what to think about and what not to not to think about those kinds of things. So, always kind of worked on that sort of positive reinforcement and focus and that. Um, and then, and then uh, for me, it was always under jumping, trying not to school the horses too much. You know, uh, not show the horses too much. Today, there are so many events, uh, so many big money events and championships. It, the sport has changed dramatically. So it was always kind of saving the horses for the big championships, jump them just enough to get ready for say the trials or the games or whether it was Devon or a trip to Europe. Um, they, they were fit enough, a lot of you know my basic dressage, getting them out twice a day, making sure they were super fit. Then a couple of schools before we'd go with George, you know, I was with George Morris at the time, and a couple of schools, and he'd have a sense of what the course builder would build. But then keeping them fresh, and that was always part of it, of not 
not jumping too much. And I think you know that's a that's a fine line that you can really trust your horses and yourself and and that part of it. Um, we've talked about uh, your your great wins. Um, there's also a lot of losing in the sport, as we all know. Um, how do you handle losing, or maybe not making a team that you really had had wanted? Well, yeah. probably want to make all the teams you try out. <laughs> right, for, right, right. Yeah, and that's um, for sure. Those are uh, the the you lose more than you win, really. Most people in our sport, no matter what what discipline you're doing, in a way, you know, you're mm-hmm. always trying to get there and. You know, oh, I don't know, it's uh, no failure, only feedback. The biggest thing would be learning. Well, how could I have done it? I didn't make the team. Was my horse not fit enough? Or I don't have the right horse. I don't have a good enough horse to do it. Um, did I, again, jump too much? Did I not train enough? So to look at each failure, each time you don't, there's not a failure, but to learn from it, the biggest thing. Um, that that would be my you know, that it happens. Um, you know, the first year I had Livius, which who was my first Olympic horse and my first international horse that George had found uh, in the 80s, and maybe 81 was the first World Cup final I went to, and I was this kid from California and uh, that had gotten this famous horse that Emil Hendricks had won maybe the European Championships on and, and was, a, at the time, a very expensive horse and um, bought by an American and a syndicate from the from the Florida Riding Club got together and bought for me and with the idea to go to the Los Angeles Olympics. And um, so I go to the first World Cup finals and I'm uh, the whole group comes and it's like, I don't know, 10 owners, 12 owners, you know, my family and everything. And I'm, you know, young, in my 20s. And and so it's my birthday. And when I go in, they and we're at Gothenburg and the, again, huge crowd and that's, a little new for me, first World Cup finals, and all this famous horse, all these people. And they announce it's my birthday, and it's the organizer's birthday, and I got to know him over the years because we had the same birthday. And I go in and proceed to fall off at the Liverpool. Oh, <laughs> I have to lead the horse out of the ring and remount or whatever. And I thought I would, and all, especially these Euro, uh, European riders, but the Eastern American riders, you know, that I was there with Rodney okay. Jenkins and everybody, Katie Monaghan. Anyway, I thought, oh my, how embarrassing, and that I should just quit. And I mean, some of those moments that you think, oh my God, how are you? And of course, I went on to have a great career, but at right. the time, at the, I mean, the end <laughs> they, of the world. Yes, yeah, so you got it. You got it. So those <laughs> things happen, and you learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, you alluded to this a little bit, I think. Um, do you get nervous, or did you get nervous, and how? If so, how do you handle that? Yeah, I would get nervous, more nervous. Um, of making a mistake, of not doing well. Not that I couldn't uh, do what was asked. Um, I always felt prepared and working with with George and and the horses I had. And yet, and yet sometimes it's like, ooh, you know, I hope we're like winning the Grand Prix of Aachen, you know, afterwards you're in the prize giving and and the jumps look enormous and you think, oh, how did I do that? But you know, <laughs> you know they, afterwards, I mean, at least me. And uh, but being being well prepared for it, you know, I would think, yeah, and, and I think I have a great horse, or again, my coach would let me in there without it. And for me, the to get the nerves, just this over and over, I would go over and over the course in my mind, uh, uh, really visualizing it. I, I was really into visualization, even before I had read about it, but what every jump and every line would feel like. And, 
And then I would walk a lot uh, between when it was time to show, or I remember uh, like during the trials and things, walking back and forth to the barn and up at the okay, ring. So just I, I don't just know, physically somehow, walking I, around. Physically not, walking. Okay, I don't know, I think not some, walking the course. No, no, or, I, you know, walk the course, but physically walking around, I think burning energy or whatever, but always kind of focused on what's the course, what's the course, going over and over. So that was sort of my mantra mm-hmm. uh, to focus on what to do, not what not to do. That's a excellent point. <laughs> Before, I think it was the 96 Olympics, we uh, had done a story, I'd interviewed you, and uh, you said, I'm not sure if you were learning to enjoy the journey, but you were definitely mind, mindful of enjoying the journey. Um, I guess, can you talk about that? It seems almost you were a little ahead of your time, because now <laughs> mindfulness is, is spoken of a lot. Right. Um, so maybe just your thoughts on enjoying the journey and how right. you've worked to do that. Yes. Um, yeah, initially, I think growing up of just um, uh, not, I mean, you know, lo- loving what, passionate about what I do and everything, but, but, uh, and how can I get better and all of that, but uh, like, like we'd go to Europe or something and Melanie would be on the team, Melanie Smith, and she'd always go off with a little sightseeing and things, and I would be like, oh, I gotta stay at the barn, I gotta stay at the barn, I gotta be near the horse, I, uh, and my mother maybe would want to go do something, and nope, I gotta stay at the barn. And just being around the horse, or hand grazing the horse, or that kind of thing, um, and and yeah, I think some beating myself up when things didn't go well, you know, being my biggest critic a lot of the time, um, and, and with age, kind of learning to lighten up, you kind of do better when you lighten up. And again, now all the spike, the sports psychologists, you know, methods mm-hmm. for that, that yes, you're focused, but you're also relaxed and you're having fun. Um, and I kind of learned that along the way about, okay, yeah, yeah, let's go sightseeing. Let's I'll take a day or an afternoon to go see something. You know, we're at these amazing different, you know, Rome or wherever, Aachen, and yeah, let's go see what else there is to mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. Um, appreciate it, because maybe you won't win anyway, but at least you have a good, but you know, I would be so into, oh, I gotta be my best and I've gotta be focused and ride well. And, and um, so, so definitely that, I mean, I wouldn't really change that but then, on the other hand, enjoying it, not beating myself up if things didn't go well, not being my biggest critic, uh, enjoying it, and the people you meet, and, and all the places you get to go, and the wonderful horses, and really appreciating it. Not that I didn't appreciate it, but uh, more so, mm-hmm. and really enjoying it, really, literally enjoy all of it, and the ups and the downs. You know, you're going to have, you know, as I say, the way it, Rome didn't go so well, and yet it was... It was a good experience, and then two weeks later, when in Mexico, you know, that's that's all part of it. That's all part of it. Right. So it's it's almost like not feeling like if you're enjoying yourself, you're not taking away from your drive or yes. your ambition. You're just they complement each other. Exactly. Absolutely. You said it beautifully. Because <laughs> growing up, I was like, no, no, no. It's just we're all work and all serious and like that. And and no. And then being around like Leslie Howard, I love being on teams with Leslie Howard because she's always laughing and cracking jokes. And and Margie the same. Margie Goldstein Angle. <laughs> you know, funny. And I'd be like overly serious. And and in time, I still don't crack the most jokes, but over time, <laughs> lightening up and enjoying it. And so they were always great, great teammates because of that. <laughs> I, that was actually my next question. I remember you had said at the time um, before the 96 games, um, I don't know if it was a selection trial or, you know, that you were sort of at the, I'm not sure if this is literal, but you were at the in-gate kind of really focused and everything and Leslie was cracking a joke and, you know, just kind of is interesting the different 
styles, yes. I guess. Absolutely, for sure. Um, and, and that's fun about being on teams because of your teammates. And also clinics you've talked about um, that you need clear methods of communicating with your horse, that, that most of the time horses want to do what we tell them to do. And if, if they don't, there's sometimes or oftentimes a communication problem. Can you speak about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, it goes along with being the reflection of the rider that the communication you know really um how we communicate are you are you too again too soft too strong uh not clear really and sometimes i see riders oh they don't want to um be too strong or or yeah i want to mostly be too strong or discipline the horse because they think it's a little bit mean or that they're not good enough or so the rider's not good enough. So I, oh, I don't want to make a mistake. So they're a little soft and they're a little vague, like for a flying change or again, going to the jump, something, they're a little weak. Oh, because I don't really know what I'm doing. And that, so you're training the horse to not do it well hmm. because you're not giving it clear commands. Okay, right leg, I'm making a lead change and come on. And if you don't do it, you're getting the spur, you're getting the stick. I mean, I mean hopefully it doesn't have to be that strong, but just sort of being weak and ineffective and, and I hear it a lot oh but I don't want to upset my horse or I don't you know I'm sort of like I'm not that good also mm-hmm. I don't want to so they only do it again sort of halfway but then by doing that you're actually doing a disservice to your horse because you're training them to not do the lead change mm-hmm. the horse wants clear communication they want you to you know I get on in a clinic and in five or ten minutes the horse can be leg yielding and shoulder in and flying change and jumping and halting and not because I'm too rough or strong, but I'm clear. So, mm-hmm. okay, now we're making a flying change. Now we're jumping the fence and halting right away, or now we're galloping. Um, so, so clear communication, not waffling uh, in what you're doing. And and even with that, get if you if you're um, again, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to make a mistake, so I don't want to leg him too much, like for a leg yield or something. I don't want to be too or, or halting. Oh, they want to stop him hard so you know the horse knows that's what you mean. You know, they're big, strong animals. And sometimes you stop him hard once or twice, you know, maybe you have to give him a jerk or something, and then the horse will get light. So then, then your aids can get lighter. But if you're mm-hmm. weak and the horse is trotting into the hall, trot, 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 and then walk, you're training, you're actually training the horse to do it. He's thinking that's He's, what he should do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He is thinking that exactly is what, what he should be doing. Because mm-hmm. you're not saying, no, canter, halt. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so so the clear communication is very important. And you've talked about that the first step in controlling a horse is controlling your, yourself, that, you know, your thoughts, your emotions, your body. Um, can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think self-control is a huge uh, self-controller, really awareness, awareness when you're riding. But the first awareness is self-awareness. Again, how, how do you control your body? If you don't know what your hands and legs or eyes or brain are doing, you, you can't feel them really. How can you feel what the horse is doing? You know, very often, again, somebody's, you say, right leg yield and they're using it right leg, but they're also kicking with the left leg. You know, so the horse isn't getting it, you know, or um, not using their aids properly. Um, again, if you can't control your own body, again, stop them hard or be strong enough with your hands or, or be light. Um, if you don't know what you're doing with your own body, how can you control the horse? So first, your own awareness. Um, again, should you be going to the gym more, that kind of stuff. Again, the sports psychology for your mental part of it. Uh, it, it really comes back to us. If we can control ourselves, 
then you have a better chance at controlling the horse. You mm -hmm. know, talk, and again, it's not just control, but how you communicate with the horse, how you talk to the horse. So sort of really self-awareness first thing. Uh, and with that, your intention. What's my intention today? To just go out and have a hack around, you know, loose rein pleasure, great, that's fine some days. No, I'm training for the horse show, whether it's a hunter or a jumper. So I'm really going to train and tell my horse, okay, we're going to go, you know, get up the lines correctly, or we're going to get the flying change, or we're going to slow, have to go slower. You know, you know that you. What's your intention today? That you're clear with that with your horse. But that's again, to me, that's a self-awareness first. You know, mm -hmm. controlling yourself. You're also a big proponent of flat work, uh, you know, in the clinics and the George Morris Horse Mastership training sessions. Uh, that's a lot of what you do. Um, why do you feel that's so important? Yeah, I, I love my flat work, and I guess I always have. Um, again, that's uh, the beginning of your jumping, and, and again, it's, it's having the conversation with your horse. Can you speed up, slow down, turn left and right with a minimum amount of effort? That's, that's very basic. Um, but that's what we're doing, and, and if you can't do it on the flat very well, lengthen, shorten, turn left and right, you know, whatever, you put jumps in there and then you're going faster and bigger, it's probably not going to go well. If you can't do it first without the jumps, it's not going to go better with the jumps. Uh, but it's also, it's uh, like going to the gym for the horses. It's, it's getting them stronger, it's getting them physically uh, fitter, but doing the lateral work, doing shoulder in, doing leg yield, doing counter canter, doing a lot of basic dressage movements, it's strengthening the horse's hind end. It's being able to change their balance. It's getting them to be able to sit down and use their hind legs, you know, their, you know, their hocks and stifles and glutes and all of that. Their hind end is their engine to go forward, also to slow down, because they have to sit down to do it well. Of course, it's their engine, it's their to jump. They have to, you know, push it's all from the hind end. So all of the basic dressage, it's yes, it's making the horses more obedient and easier to ride, but through that, it's actually because it's like going to the gym. They get stronger, physically stronger. Mm -hmm. Then they actually get lighter in the mouth when they're stronger behind and better balanced, all of those things, your communication to really be able to gallop and shorten and, again, turn uh, with a minimum amount of effort, effortlessly. And it's like, like a young boy, like, like young horses, a young boy or young girl, you know, they can't do what older kids do because physically they're not, they don't have the muscles, they don't have the strength. Mm -hmm. And even though the young, you know, you go to the gym and you, they start working out and you see them change, yeah, they get faster and stronger and more agile. Children, people, mm -hmm. as, and, and, and even older people, I mean, a lot of kids, I, kids and adults, I say, you know, if you go to the gym, it'll be better. Uh, even some professionals, yeah, and they're like, oh my God, yeah, my riding is better and my balance is better. Not not just because physically they can like hang on to the horse, but the whole body, same thing, is, is better. You're an athlete, and the horse is an athlete. So the flat work for that, along with to me, it's fun. I mean, I, I just see, as you see them change, whether like even an arrows having them at five and developing a young horse up into a Grand Prix horse or a championship horse to see how they physically change. Uh, you know, it's fascinating. Stronger and more confident. And all of that, mm -hmm. absolutely, yeah. Um, talking about uh, kind of getting into some specifics, at, at many of the clinics I've seen, um, you, at some point you usually have the riders um, use what I believe you call a driving rein or holding the reins in a driving rein fashion. Um, can you, it might be a little hard in a podcast, but can you describe what that looks like or how that is and why you think that's important? Yeah, I've used that for a long time. Normally the rein, the rein is under your pinky finger and goes to the mm -hmm. horse's mouth, whereas in what I would call a driving rein, your, your 
the rain is coming out of between your first finger and your thumb going to the horse's mouth. Um, and what that does is it really softens the rider's arm. They, for some reason, I should know, but anyway, um, you can't be as stiff in your elbow the way you use your muscles that way. So it makes the arm more supple. You can still be, of course, strong enough, but you can't really lock it if you experiment with that, the mm -hmm. rain coming under your pinky or out of the top. So it makes the rider's arm much more supple. Uh, some I use for jumping to have more of an automatic release, um, but also just some riders that get very stiff in their elbows, which a lot of riders do, it just gets a more elastic connection to the horse's mouth. I was always taught the, the you know, that your arm going, it's almost feeling like you have your fingers in the horse's mouth, the, the connection, the elasticity in your arm, uh, that your arm is really a continuation of the rein, hmm. uh, that feeling. So try, trying to teach feeling actually is to change the feeling. I guess somewhat similarly, like when teaching riders at, at a clinic or students, um, what are some of the things that you find yourself commonly working through or what challenges do you see a lot of riders right. having? Um, I guess, uh, again, basic position, to, to a rider's awareness of basic position just to start with, the, again, the feeling your body. You know, are they sitting on the vertical, the stirrup length, those kinds of things, uh, feeling balanced on the horse's back, just just basic equitation position. Some So many people have, you know, the reins are too long and their hands are in their lap or they're, you know, leaning a little too far forward, a little too far back. It's getting that you're in the most effective place on the horse. Um, most books on dressage are efficient. It's, it's, you know, that you're in the middle of your horse and your hands are over in front of the withers, your heels are down. That sounds funny, but many riders at a clinic don't. Uh, they just a little, again, too long a rein. I see that a lot, too long a rein. Very often I have my kids ride with a knot in their reins. So their hands are over in front of the withers, their elbows are in front of their hips. Um, but to be in the, the best place for you to influence the horse uh, while you're riding him, with that, um, and as quickly as possible. Again, your reins are too long, then you gotta gather them up to do something or your eyes are down, instead of up looking where you're going, you know, it takes you a couple of seconds. It takes sometimes a minute that instead of, with the top riders, immediately you're slowing down, you're turning, you're looking. So, so your basic position, again, stirrups aren't, I like them a little longer on the flat, but not so long that you're, you can't get your heels down. A little shorter to jump, that's a big thing also. I think some people jump with their stirrups too long very often I get them to, so they have more bend in their knee and their ankle. Mm -hmm. That was a real, um, from Billy Steinkraus years ago, and Billy is the one who got Rodney. Rodney Jenkins rode with his stirrup really short, and Terry Rudd, um, who, who worked with Rodney. Um, but so, especially jumping bigger fences, but even some of the kids today, equitation, oh, we want this long leg. But then their center of balance, sometimes mm -hmm. they're, they get a little topsy-turvy in there. Very, I see it all. I'm shorten up a hole or two, and they get their heels down better, and they their their balance is better with the horse on top of the jump. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of those are just some of the a little bit like I say jumping a little bit shorter stroke. Very often a shorter rein. Put a knot in the reins, and they sort of put them over the horse's center of gravity. Hmm. Again, not okay. not too long a stroke, too long a rein, but they're falling back. Um, and, and you know, when you can get the, I do that a lot, uh, the knot on the reins, um, you get them in that position, it becomes effortless. And sometimes it's in like putting the knot in the reins, like dropping the stirrups on the flat. I do have riders do that a lot in my clinics. 
because they sit better. They either fall off, and hardly anybody ever falls off, but they find the natural center of balance mm -hmm. without their stirrups. Instead of sort of either bracing on them or standing up in them, you know, that kind of, you, uh, pinching at the knee, take the stirrups away, and naturally they find the, the center of gravity over the horse. Then, then the trick is to pick up the stirrups and keep that same feeling. Um, so some of those little things in a clinic, and again, really quickly, the riders will say, oh yeah, that's better. The horse goes better, even whether they're on the flat or jumping. And that's then, can, when you leave the clinic, can you recreate that? But some of those just little, little things like that can be very helpful. And with the knot in the reins, it's, as you said, so that they get their hands in front of the withers. Yes, just over in front, so that, that your elbow is just in front of your hip. Um, and, that, and then also that your hands stay together with the knot. Some riders, again, they get their hands maybe too wide or busy or one higher than the other. That's, I see that a lot. And very often that's, that's a human. Maybe they need, I also often say, you know, have you been to the chiropractor? Or because the rider is kind of crooked. Um, but, but putting the knot, um, that the, it just puts them in the place they should be. And again, can't get their hands too wide. Then jumping, I, I like a two point, a half seat, generally for jumping, um, so that I'll have a little shorter knot in the reins, so because the rider's center of gravity is more forward. And again, immediately the control is better, the steering is better. Uh, it's funny because you're putting them a little bit in a straitjacket that they can't do so much, but saying, they actually do it better by doing less and being in the right position. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can see where people would, if you had them make those changes, where they might be uncomfortable for a bit. Yes, yes. many riders are initially, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. Or, and sometimes maybe a horse will fight it a little bit because they're used to maybe pulling the reins out of the rider's hand. So the rider's not having the contact. It, but when they, they continue and sort of just, okay, give up and, and go with it, I'm telling you, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, the, it can have remarkable changes. But it's a, uh, the rider really is doing less, doing less in a sense physically, sometimes thinking more, mm -hmm. and, and, but physically doing less and letting the horse do what they, what they do. You know, the horses, not that they don't need some help for sure, but very often the, the riders, the human being wants to do too much. Uh, in looking at pictures of you, uh, a lot of photos, um, you're often in the uh, using the automatic release. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? The do you prefer the automatic release versus the crest release? Yeah, yeah I'm I'm a big fan of the automatic release, and uh, that's gone a little bit out of fashion. I think you still see it a bit more in the European riders. But when I grew up uh, in doing the equitation in the 70s. Um, the, the crest release was just coming into fashion then, in sort of the late 70s. Uh, um, but growing up there, yeah, to have a straight line from the elbow of the horse's mouth, and you would see it George Morris from when he was doing equitation, Conrad Holmfeld, Mary Chapeau, uh, the old old equitation riders, but even and Billy Steinkrest jumped the Olympics, straight line from the elbow of the horse's mouth, Kathy Kessner. Um, I think you have to have a better core and down in your, your heels and things. It's not so much actually, I mean, it is about where your arm and hand is, but you can have this, Joe and Conrad, Joe, Joe Farges, Conrad Homefeld, they had the most beautiful releases forever. Uh, and, and their legs, the heels down, the position. Um, because your core and your leg and your heels down, uh, your base is stronger, then you can be softer and lighter with your arms and you're not using the horse's neck for balance or the mouth. 
for balance. You know, some riders and even some equitation, you know, they're almost doing, they're almost pulling back on the horse's mouth on top of the jump or even lifting their hands a little bit. I mean, ideally, yes, they should be pushed down in the crest. Sometimes they're using the horse's mouth for, for balance uh, uh, rather than having their own, like I said, controlling your own position, controlling your own balance, which then is allowing the horse to jump like he can jump to you know if you turned him loose and jumped him in a free jumping shoot most of them would use their back use their head and neck put their i mean that's what you want them to do is you know put their head down over the jump and their back comes up not be stiff you know some equitation pictures you know this hands right at the crest which is okay but you know the stiff back head almost up of the horse so the rider's not getting jumped loose instead of saying here uh, with the automatic release that I learned was to, to say, here, use your head and neck, use your back, show me what a beautiful bascule you can have, and mm -hmm. I'm not going to interfere with it. You know, me having good balance uh, to allow the horse to, to have balance and use his head and neck however, and his back however he wants to. Mm -hmm. So, Ian, can you talk a little bit about how you introduce uh, riders to the automatic release? Yeah, it's a one of my favorite exercises, and I learned it as a child riding riding with Jimmy Williams. He had a jumping shoot, a, a round shoot that he put a lot of horses free jumping in. And I mean, we did it, of course, in the ring as well. But but very often, you know, he'd put us in the jumping shoot uh, with no reins or tie the reins around the horse's neck, and you'd jump with your arms out to the side, and your or your hands on your hips, or your hands on the top of your head. You know, being in a two point, he'd crack the whip, and off the horses would go. You know, you're not regulating the horse. You're you're uh, just up there working on your balance and position that you, without using the horse's neck, you know, could you jump with your hands straight out to the side or like I say, on your hips and to be flexible and down in your heels. And, and that was developing, not, not what you call the automatic release there. Um, but, but sort but the feeling of that down through your heels and your base of support and not using the neck or the mouth or anything for your balance. You just, I mean, a lot of you people know right? you can't. And some people maybe on a lunge line would do that kind of thing too, but no, no, crack the whip and off you go. And um, so balance, all about finding your own balance and controlling your body. Then yes, the 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 way I teach it, and, and I guess he, he did as well, but. So this turning your hands over, which you would say the driving rein, um, with your so holding the rein between your thumb and your forefinger, and spreading your hands way out, both hands on the approach to the jump, so up in your canter, and and even that, um, or your trot. Uh, some pe riders, you know, always on the neck, always, or they pull up and they're falling on their hands, or or that kind of thing, um, of spreading your hands way out and going to the jump and keep your hands wide on top of the, you know, in front of the jump, on top of the jump, and after the jump, and finding your balance without using the neck or the mane, um, that, that feeling, many ride, and ideally then, when you're doing that, there should end up being a straight line from your elbow to the horse's mouth. Um, that, that's the automatic release, which I do holding the reins normally, you know, following that mm -hmm. way and maybe separating my hands a little bit and even myself, to give a horse confidence, I'll spread my hands out a little bit. I, that gives a horse confidence, not not putting, you know, sort of collapsing on them and throw, putting your hands down on the neck, getting in the fetal position. No, you want to stretch up a little bit, separate your hands. That'll give a horse a lot of confidence. Michael Metz used to do it a lot. Sometimes there were some great photos of Michael kind of spreading his hands out. But this, How does that give the horse confidence? Yeah, um, um, a little bit. The rider maybe stays a little more open, and, and it almost is like a funnel uh, sending the horse forward when you separate your hands. Whereas some people, you know, the horses stop or get green and the 
the rider falls forward, you know, kind of, the horse spooks or, or goes to slow down a little bit. Well, the rider's leg falls back, they fall on their hands a little bit and fall forward. Well, of course, the horse's engine is out behind them. The horse's head goes down and everything is a little like falling down. Instead of staying a little open, separating your hands, kind of a funnel effect to the jump. Um, but so in teaching that, that I, looking for a straight line from your elbow to the horse's mouth, you have to have better balance. And, and, and over time, riders will get it, some quicker than others. Some little kids may be actually even faster than, than, mm -hmm. than the adults. Um, but when they get it, there's this feeling, and I see it a lot in my clinics, when they really feel it, there's sort of this sweet spot, and it's like, oh my God, yeah. And then the horse is jumping up to the rider. Now, if you duck, so you have your hands off the neck and your hands are wide, if you tend to duck, you'll fall on the neck or your hands are going. If your lower leg tends to swing back, you're going to fall on the neck. So mm -hmm. you have to be able to, with your body, your heels down, your core, you're holding yourself there. You're not holding yourself there by the neck or some hunter riders that duck, you know, they get to the jump and they just throw their body forward. And, you know, maybe the hunter jumps well like that still. I find it unattractive and unnecessary. Let the horse jump up to you, you know, hold your position and let the horse jump up to you. Um, so that's one of my favorite exercises because I, not only it, it helps the rider, but you'll see the horses start to jump better. They, because the, the rider isn't interfering, giving them a, a place to come up to, I promise mm -hmm. the horses jump better with that position. Now, not, not that you can't do it with the crest release. McLean, beautiful, beautiful. And yet occasionally there's a picture straight line from the elbow of the horse's mouth with him. But no, no, you can. And for some more novice riders, some riders that aren't strong enough, older, younger, whatever, ha, you know, put your hand on the, on the neck for sure. That's easy. That's mm -hmm. novice, beginner, you know, some advanced riders, of course, they use the crest release. The other you feel when you really, your balance really is correct when you take your hands off the neck as a, oh yeah, my leg really does fly back, or yeah, mm -hmm. I do I do duck ahead of the horse, you know, to really find find it and what it yeah. feels like. Mm -hmm. And McLean, I think he's even said he, he can do the automatic yes, release. Right. So his preference is perhaps the short, uh, the crest release. Yes, exactly. But he and can do it. Yes, <laughs> we've had to, McLean and I have had discussions about it for sure. And and for many, the crest release is better because they're, they, in a sense, they don't interfere with the horse. You know, they're not, you're, whether you're, they're really asking the horse to jump better or differently, but they don't, you don't interfere. At least you're kind of just stuck there on the neck. Um, it's just a little different philosophy of, of riding, but either way, I mean, I can also do the crest release and you know, to, to be a great rider, you ought to be able to do both anyway, you know. One question I've asked in, in other podcasts is about your mentors mm -hmm. as a, a rider. Um, and um, for you, that's a little bit of a complicated, well, a complicated question to say the least. You uh, mentioned just talking about Jimmy Williams. Um, and you know that's a person you trained with when you were younger and yourself and and some other women have shared your stories about how um you've been sexually abused um and this started when you were 11 but you also when we talked about this a little bit he was a big influence here in your riding life and and teaching you in, in riding how do you how do you reconcile that well, it's taken um, a long time, I guess. Uh, I'm thankful for the, all that I learned. I mean, I had many great mentors. Jimmy was, you know, pro probably the main one for a long time, for sure, when I was a kid. Um, started with him when I was 11, and you know, started riding when I was four, but then with him when I was 11 and into my early 20s. Um, 
but I got to work with Hilda Gurney. She was a great dressage, is a great dressage trainer and rider. I got to work with Bert Nimothy when he was still at Gladstone when I first went to Gladstone in the early 80s. Um, of course, George Morris for many, many, many years then. I mean, maybe longer now with, with George than, than with Jimmy. So I've had some amazing mentors in my life. Um, but the, the Jimmy Williams one, he, uh, you know, as a horseman, he was a great horseman, you know, a legend as a horseman, for sure. And so much that he taught me uh, that, for sure, how to, how to be strong, how to be, ride a hunter, how to ride a jumper, how to get inside a horse's brain, his uh, basic cowboy psychology. And he didn't do classical dressage, but he, yeah, the horses had to mind the leg. He came from the Western world. So, so all of that. Um, he, he actually had Hilda Gurney come to the Flemish Riding Club to teach a handful of us. Uh, so, so the, you know, I'm th so thankful for what he introduced me to as far as horsemanship and horse training and, and good things and not so good things. I mean, he could be tough as hell on horses as well. You know, he was from the, the he'd been in the army. He um, was a cowboy. He, he then he went got to hunters and jumpers as well. So he could be tough. He could he could be very very tough as well on horses and people. Um, and yet you you learn from that what you want to do and what you don't want to do. You know as you grow you mm -hmm. don't have to do everything that you're taught later in life. And so you learn all of it. So I'm thankful for that. No question. Uh, you know I got to Barcelona Olympics on cannonball and he stopped out in the first round of the Barcelona Olympics. And it was, of course, when I had learned riding stoppers, bad or tough horses, at Flintridge with Jimmy Williams, how to get them to jump anything, whether they wanted to or not. Uh, that's how I got the uh, cannonball around the second round. I sort of, okay, buddy, you got to get around. Um, so I'm thankful for all of that. And yet, yes, he sexually abused me and went on for years. And... Uh, you know that that's where it's so difficult, and and to talk about it these days, uh, because um, it's com complicated, complex, in the sense of sometimes there are these wonderful, you know, whether it's a him or in other walks of life that are really great at what they do. They can be a genius. I think in some ways he was a genius, but they got a problem. Mm -hmm. They've got a problem. Uh, I think I could have been great without all of that. I mean, I know I could have been great for sure without, and maybe even better uh, without it. Um, but so part, a lot of it is also the piece of that forgiveness. There's a huge piece of that. I you know I did a lot of work on it myself, uh, spiritually, with a psychologist. Oh, I mean, a lot to deal with it. Uh, you see the good and the bad part of it. Yes, it makes you stronger. Yes. He, he said, you know, I would never really make it. He was very tough. You'll never be good enough. That was one of his messages to me. Maybe not to all of his students, but that was one of his messages. And it wasn't just the physical, but some of that. And I believe that's what he was raised, and that was his generation. But you'll never be good enough. Part of me then was, by God, I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. And by God, I'm going to make it. Some people didn't. Some people, drugs and this and that, and didn't make it. But I was more driven from that. Mm -hmm. Everybody handles it differently, um, mm -hmm. and yet he, had, he he trained more professionals in California, and of course Robert Ridlin that went to the Olympics, and Mary Chapeau. I mean, you know, he he was a good coach that way. Um, so so the forgiveness piece of it, uh, also, he had his demons, and and I did a big thing of forgiveness with him as well because I can't carry it around the rest of my life, which mm -hmm. many people do. 
you gotta, you know, okay, it happened. Uh, you know, I got lemon, I was handed lemonades and I made lemonade. Uh, it was handed lemons and mm -hmm. I made lemonade out of it. I'm thankful. Really for the horses in my life, they were really the saviors. I was fortunate, not turning to drugs or alcohol or anything. Uh, they were my passion. They honestly heard all about it <laughs> growing up in the stall, whatever, uh, that got me to, yes, to the Olympics. And by God, part of it I'm going to show you. Yes, part of it was, of course, my passion for the, for the horses and what I want to do. Um, so it's a, it's a complex thing, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm very thankful and very grateful that, as I say, I, I took it and got to do great things with my life. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if that can help any young girl, young boy, it happens to boys too, uh, you know, go for your dreams and, and it's not the end of the world and you think you're the only one, you know, you're not anymore. And I'm, and I'm so thankful, like what our federation has done, that there are places you can call, you can talk to people, you can, you know, I mean, it's, it's safe. You know, again, I, I didn't do talk because there, you felt like there was no place to go. And, um, Anyway, so it's a it's a great time now that you know to yeah talk about it right um, and you have been a big advocate talking about safe sport and um, you know what the USEF is doing and, and giving people uh, a place to report uh, these situations um, and I think you've said no child should have to go through what you went through that it that it's not okay yeah. um, and is that I, I guess kind of a, a basic question but why did you feel that you needed to come forward and share your story. Yeah, well, I, I um, years ago did some therapy, um, of course, and came to grips with it, and I really thought I was okay. I'd done all this work, and I really thought I was okay. Years ago, uh, though, maybe in the, the late 80s, I guess, I finally shared it with my sister. I really hadn't shared it with anybody but, but the therapist, maybe one or two close friends, and because uh, I was dealing with it, and I'd been to two Olympics, and life goes on and yeah it's okay you know it happens and it, or it happened and yeah, it's okay not something you were to talk about for sure that was like nope you should never talk to anybody about this and um well i shared it with my sister well he did it to her too and that's when it was like oh my god you know to me it was like okay i dealt with it but oh my god uh then i got together with some friends sure enough it had happened to a handful of them and i believe there were before and after, whatever. But anyway, so this group of us got together, and we did start to talk about it a little bit. I say this, I think, was late 80s, maybe, you know, I think late 80s, early 90s. And um, got together, we were going to take some action. You know, people say, well, you know, he's, he's passed. You know, that's not fair. The guy's not here to defend himself. We brought it up late 80s, early 90s. Uh, statute of limitations, we couldn't do anything. You know, and, and Jimmy knew. Jimmy knew. There, he knew. Uh, met a therapist and a uh, an attorney, but we couldn't do anything. So it's like, okay, we we this was healing for us to get together. Okay, I got more Olympics and the rest. Of, like, keep going with life and whatever. So I did. But then this last year, uh, when um, it came up, first the Hollywood stuff, mm -hmm. and I and I I sort of couldn't get away from the television. Then of course the gymnast, and it was like, oh my God. And then I shared it with Diane Langer. We were at the National Horse Show last year. And uh, Diane was, then she shares her story. Of course, I share my story. And of course, she knew Jimmy and 
thought had, had heard things like that, but anyway. And I was like, you know, we need to do something about it. And especially our positions now, and it wasn't really the position that I'm this, uh, you know, coach now, the, the developing team. But on a personal level, you know, I love my sport. I love the horses. Uh, I was a little girl that all I wanted to do was ride and become the best rider and the best horsewoman I could. And I, the feeling, if I could help one other little girl uh, to not have to go through that, that it should be our sport and, and all sports should be safe for children mm -hmm. uh, to speak up, to speak up, to stop the predators. But even more than that, I have to say, I mean, yes, to stop the predators, but part of what's come up this last go-round of talking to, to uh, the Chronicle, the first article that came out, and then the New York Times and things, is um, really getting it that some adults knew something at, at the riding club. Some people knew something was going on. Yes, my mother was in the middle of a divorce and you know maybe drank too much, that kind of stuff, whatever. And these guys know who to prey on. They, they know, they're very clever, they're very cunning. Not only do they groom the kids, the children, that, that think they're God, but they groom everybody and the adults around, this sort of brainwashing. Mm -hmm. He used to say, you know, love to brainwash the horses, but he brainwashed the people as well. And, uh, and through that, of, of really, if I can help another child, but by getting the adults to pay attention, to see the signs, to, you know, you think something maybe is a little off, well, speak up or check it out. Uh, you know, you know, to and that's that's what the federation has done so well. I, I think the federation and safe sport through the federation um, taking the the training, the safe sport training. All these things when you take the training of what to look for, and many people have said, "Oh man, I really did learn a lot." You know, I really thought I knew, you know, what they do, how they do it. Um, so so you know, it was really now is just the time I think in the world in the universe to talk about it. Years ago, it wasn't really the right time. Mm -hmm. And um, and at this stage of my career and life, yeah, it seemed like the right time to bring it up. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about, uh, just mentioned about the grooming, and that was something um, the representative from the US Center for Safe Sport at the USEF annual meeting, he talked about um, that, you know, they're grooming the children and meaning, um, well, maybe you could talk about that better than I about what 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 that means. Yeah, they very often uh, will pick somebody out, uh, and and you know maybe more uh, more than one at a time in a in a way. When you're a little kid, you don't know. You know, as eleven, I, I you know you're a little kid. We your your life is you don't know much. Uh, you, you don't have a frame of reference for things. Um, what's right know, and what's right and wrong? Yes, exactly. What's right and wrong? And when God or this you know, God, everybody says he's God, he's Jimmy Wims, he's this famous guy that all these other famous people say is a great horseman. So you listen, you know, you're, you're okay, whatever he says is okay or good or, so they can, they can, uh, you know, whether it's giving gifts, giving a little more attention, you know, those kinds of here, you know, you get to ride this extra horse or not, you know, then also, no, well, we're going to take it away if you, you don't do what I tell you to do or ask you to do. Befriend them, uh, you know, they really become like the best friend or confident, you know, you can tell me anything. I mean, there are all these things. 
really sort of mind warping stuff that goes on because the kids are young, you know, uh, they're open to whatever. And, and yes, this is a revered guy. It's not, you know, most of them are not like the creep you see, you know, with the 7-Eleven outside looking weird, right, you know, those right. are, it's, it's the friend of a family. It's the, somebody that the, that the adults have put total faith in them. You know, yes, this is a, a outstanding pillar of the community kind of person. Um, oh, that would never happen. But if you watch the signs, uh, and as I say, sort of gifts or special attention or stay afterwards because you're going to get extra attention or an extra ride or those kinds of things that they become kind of their friend and their confidant. Uh, and, and, but if you notice, and I have to say, my dad, my dad, you know, when I finally shared it with him years later, he cried and said, you know, I went to do something about you changed. Mm. I went to the president of the riding club and he said, oh, no, no. Th- you know, he thought it was Jimmy, something was going on. And of course the president said, oh, no, no, that would never happen. So he, dad knew something was different, but he, again, he didn't go far enough or he didn't have these tools to go, who do you talk to or, you know. Right. It's almost like listening to your gut in some instances. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right now, the USCF uh, is uh, requiring all adult competitors to take, I think it's about a 90 minute training session on safe sport. Um, And I, I think, I guess I've heard people saying, well, I'm not going to do it so, you know, I'm, I'm not a sexual predator, so why do I need to take it? You've right. touched upon that. It's it's recognizing maybe those minute signs mm-hmm. because, um, is that? Absolutely. I mean, I've said that because people have said to me, why should I take it? Or an older owner, you know, in their 80s or whatever that hardly even go to a horse show anymore. I still think everybody should take it because you're going to save some little kid, honestly, to... To, or even, you know, say, oh my God, yeah, I saw somebody do that, or what I saw him do with that girl, maybe, yeah, that shouldn't have really happened. So it's a really education, education for sure. And as I say, in my case, I know that people knew something, you know, and after the fact, now that so many years, years ago, but you hear, you know, that for sure somebody did know something, they didn't do anything about it for whatever reason. Uh, but if you see something, say something, that kind of thing. It's, but it's, a, it's an education. Honestly, most people I've talked to that have taken it and they've moaned that it's going to take 90 minutes or two hours or something. You know, you live to be 70, 80, 90 years old. What's two hours, you know, an hour and a half out of that? If you learn something and you could really make a difference to say, no, that, that shouldn't happen. Don't, mm-hmm. don't, that, that little girl shouldn't be sitting on your lap at the barn, you mm-hmm. know, this older guy, you know, Th- right. things like that. Right. Um, and then, you know, just to, to make sure we clarify, um, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, kind of the, how you reconcile, you know, the training that you learned versus this bad behavior. You were, we were talking a little bit about not sending mixed messages. So mm-hmm. it's, can you talk a little bit about that? Just making. Yeah, that's, a, you know, it's a tough one because um, everybody deals with it differently. Some people are, are going to speak out. I've had many people say, I could never say, it happened to me, but I can't say anything. Or my parents are still alive, that would kill them. I mean, I've had, you know, people say something happened, but they, and then others that are, yeah, I need to, I'm going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, everybody handles it how they're going to, and everybody's at a different place in their life, uh, in their growth. And, and whether you say, you know, you had a problem, or some people would say, you know, he was sick or something. 
people like that, you know, they, you know, on the other hand, again, with the forgiveness piece and the compassion, many of them, it happened to them growing up, that, that's why they're like that, so, so, I mean, when you learn about it, not that that's, not that that's saying it's okay, it's not okay, it's not, it should, period, period, period. it should never, never, never happen. Someone's in this situation, they should not, not be afraid to not report it, they should. Absolutely, no, you're making a great point, absolutely, report it, it shouldn't happen, it shouldn't have happened, I, as I say, it was way after the fact, he was still alive when I tried to do something, it's Mm -hmm. not that I waited till he was dead right uh, I did try to do something so no you should definitely report it that mm-hmm. no you it should never have happened for mm-hmm. sure um, and even just now recently you know, someone saying in a different sport well I just saw something on the internet about a behavior this guy might have had in another country I said maybe you should find another coach and or if you're there make sure that you're you know the adult is there with the, your child all the time you don't mm-hmm. leave them alone you know, and that's just the way the world is today. Right. So absolutely not if it, you know, that should never happen. Mission yeah. should never, ever, ever happen. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you're just talking about Jimmy and acknowledging, I guess, the good parts just kind of speaks to, to what you had said and what um, it was, uh, the again, the representative from the U.S. Center of Safe Sport had said at the USEF meeting was that... Um, you know, these people are, they're upstanding people in their community. Uh, you know, it could be in a non-horse situation, a, a church leader, um, and that they're very skilled at deception. And, you know, he said, you know, if they were crappy people 100% of the time, sure, it'd be an easy to identify them, but they're, they're not. They have, you know, um, pillars of the community in some aspects. Right. So. Yeah, and, and with that, also then that the younger people right now teach them, boys and girls, you know, not saying just guys, it's not okay, don't do it. You can still, and you can still be a great horseman, horsewoman, and not have that behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, get help, get therapy, do, if you have a problem, if, you know, that's a tendency, you're going to do, do something with it. Take care of yourself, mm-hmm. get help for that also. Before it's too late, that that kind of thing as well, and still they can be a great horseman. But no, it's not. I mean, they anybody that's abused a child really, yes, they should be in trouble. They they should be held accountable. No kidding. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Mm-hmm. It's it's wrong. Totally wrong. Um, well, you were just uh, named the recipient of the Sally Bush Wheeler Trophy. Uh, you were awarded the this for. That's awarded for distinguished service to equestrian sport. Um, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that was really a shock. Uh, <laughs> I was—I didn't know it was coming by any means. And um, uh, yeah, I—I'm I, very honored uh, that Marie Kessler would, and the Federation would, would you know, award me that. Um, humbled and honored. Uh, and thank, very, very thankful because I, I really, it, I, I really thought about this a lot last year before I spoke out for sure. Mm-hmm. Something inside saying, yes, you really need to do this. And um, I, I, I talked to a few close friends, but I, you know, I didn't just do, do it lightly. But I love my sport. I love what, again, what horses have done for me. And honest to God, they were my saviors through this. No kidding. And horses on many will say they're, they are healers. They're healing. 
so I've always felt, even even before this award and going through this, but of even my teaching, my it's giving back to the sport. It's really giving back to the horses. Even when I teach, I very often in my clinic say, you know, I'm really here more for the horses than you people. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm giving the horses a, a mouthpiece, a voice of what I'm seeing and they're asking for uh, to you be a better rider, a better caretaker. And um, so I'm, I'm, you know, very, very touched and was hugely shocked uh, to get the award. Um, but it's so wonderful because I, I Every now and then I think this is crazy saying all this out. I've been a very, very private person all my, my career mm -hmm. and to really put it all out there. Uh, but for the children, for the horses, for the, our sport, uh, and yet for all kids in all sports, but personally, um, it's worth it and it's it means a great deal to me. And so I'm, uh, anyway, I'm um, still kind of in shock and amazed for <laughs> the award. Right, right. Um, Talking, um, you know, about training, uh, training the next generation. Uh, you are the chef to keep for the U.S. Show Jumping Development Program. Um, what's it like to bring along the next generation of riders? Yeah, it's fun. You know, I sort of took it on last year to to really have this position. And um, again, I I love working with them. I love being at the top level of the sport. I also help, you know, low level kids that come for lessons and ride with me and things. But to uh, share um, what's happened to me. My experience is riding with the team and preparing, or as I say, talking about falling off at my first World Cup finals, you know, <laughs> sharing those stories with them, those, you know, truths, uh, even to the parents of the kids, fun, sharing that. Uh, and they, they are, oh, fascinated, you know, or how did my parents do it, or, you know, the things that you go through. Um, so I, I, I enjoy that and working with the top riders, but and also the ones that are striving to get there, for sure. Uh, to same thing to inspire them to uh, if they really want it they can get there I, I always was sort of told you know follow your dreams go for it why not what do you have to lose uh, instead of oh I don't know and I'm not good enough or that, that kind of, not that I don't have those voices I've had those voices in my head as well but still this inside thing of yeah why not leave California and go to the East Coast why not try to go to the Olympics uh, why not uh, so, so to share that with the kids for me is really fun, and to and, and I've always enjoyed teaching, um, and, and it's fun also having been through all the phases of life. You know, now that I'm older, uh, to revisit it through the children and how maybe I, I, I think I do it better now that I'm older. Um, mm -hmm. Again, compassion and not being the critic. No, and then knowing a bit of what goes on in the riders' minds, you know, the good, the ups mm -hmm. and the downs, and being that age again, or how I dealt with it, or my or friends dealt with it, and so so being able to guide them uh, along the way is, is I, I'm enjoying it very much, um, and and working with their trainers and, and their, the whole their whole team to say, okay, this, if you really want to go to the Olympics, these little pointers, or, you know, get to a championship, ride, ride on a five-star, you know, U.S. team kind of thing, uh, here are some um, things that might help you, you know. And through, you know, the different phases of your career and your life, what's the most important thing you've learned about yourself or what's one one thing that stands oh out? Um, I guess the biggest thing I've kind of learned through all of it, which might sound a little silly, uh, but that I am enough, that I'm good enough. Because for so long, for so many years, Jimmy said, you'll never be good enough. 
many people really didn't ever know that, but that was really, you know, you know so, so always that, and a little bit, you know, lack of self-esteem, things like that. But through years of doing this and believe, and like I say, there's this other part of me of, yeah, go for it, you know, go for it. But sort of this is the little voices, you know, you'll mm-hmm. never be good enough, you'll never be good enough. And to say, no, yeah, that I, uh, so that, that sort of a self, um, yeah, yeah, I am good enough. And I, uh, that, that part of it, and of course, to be thankful for all the, the people and horses along the way, always so thankful that my wonderful owners and, and friends and uh, Fran Steinwedel, who still owns part of Eros that I've known since I was five, and she's in her 80s, you know, see, see her at WEF and things. Uh, all the wonderful people along the way um, that did believe, even when I wasn't believing in me, that believed in me, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I think with the kids today, same thing. You know, again, we're, we're our own worst critics. We're our own toughest critics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that, that, you know, we all, we all are flaws, no flaws. We all are good, great people. You know, mm-hmm. there's greatness inside of all of us, no matter what it is you're doing. Whether you're going to be a great mother or a great horse trainer or a great whatever, banker or somebody on the Internet. There's greatness in all of us. And to know that and believe that right. and share that. Uh, and, and that, the same with the horses. To me, the, all the horses are great, no matter what level. And that some, somehow from them, uh, that same, you know, the greatness, Eros was, you know, five. You know, the, how can I be the best I can be to get the most out of Eros or Starman or somebody? Great. Well, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate your time and, and your insights and being so open. Well, thank you. I, um, I'm, it's been fun to be here and see you again, and, and hopefully um, some of this will help some kid along the way. Great. Thank you for listening to Practical Horseman's podcast. You can find more information about safe sport at the U.S. Equestrian Federation's website, uscf.org. On the top menu bar, there's a safe sport tab that will bring you to a page with videos uh, containing information about safe sport and also with contact information about where to report sexual misconduct, which is the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. That phone number is 720-524-5640. The USEF handles all reports of non-sexual misconduct, including harassment, hazing, bullying, physical or emotional misconduct. And you can find out where to report those situations on the website. Again, thanks so much for listening to Practical Horseman's podcast. Upcoming conversations are with eventers Jim Wofford, Buck Davidson, and William Fox Pitt, top hunter rider Liza Boyd, and more. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.